We're going to Titus chapter 1. This morning we'll be picking it up in verse 5. And if you would uh, join me in prayer one more time. Heavenly Father, indeed we confess you are worthy to be praised with our every thought, word, and deed. I pray now, Lord God, as we come to your word, you would enable me to speak in the strength that you supply as one speaking the oracles of God, that your word might be honored in our midst. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. Cause us to behold your Son by the power of your Spirit, that we may be increasingly conformed to his likeness. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and Redeemer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So at the end of August, one morning, I opened my personal Gmail inbox and I was in for a complete shock. In the past 24 hours, I had received over 1,500 emails from a number of different random entities bombarding my inbox. I was shocked and I was wondering what was going on. And then throughout the rest of that day, I also happened to notice every one or two minutes, another email would come. And then another email would come in. And my inbox was absolutely flooded. Uh, some of these emails were in Chinese. Uh, other ones were in Russian. It, it seemed like every company all over the world all of a sudden had my email address. And I was wondering if I'm in some kind of a nightmare. And I have to even close down this email account. Well, I asked for help from a few friends. And then I looked it up on Google, uh, the uh, important source of all our information on things like this. And I realized that I was now a victim of a very vicious kind of scam attack called a subscription bomb. And a subscription bomb basically is when someone who's trying to scam you or to use your personal information or to do something uh, deleterious to you, what they do is they use bots and these bots will then subscribe you to many different services on different websites, and then all of those services begin to send you these emails. Your email is added to a number of subscription lists. And what is the motive? Why would they want to flood my inbox with all of these emails? Well, I soon learned that when you are uh, the target of a subscription bomb, usually they're doing that so that you would have all of this garbage and noise in your inbox and miss something critical and important in your inbox. And so right enough, I went, looked at my bank account and credit card and realized that my credit card had been used for a purchase of 16,000 AED, which I did not make. And the bank had indeed alerted me to this by sending me an email from fraud protection, but that email was lost in the maze of the 1,500 and counting other emails that I had received 
from all over the world. Now, thankfully, I was able to talk to the bank and get the charge canceled, and I was able to very patiently, as best as I can describe it, go through each one of those emails and delete all of them and clean up my inbox. And every now and then, even now, one or two emails will pop in like that, but the issue is gone. This was a scam attack, and the strategy was to fill up my inbox with garbage in order that I would miss what was most important. The churches in Crete were victims of a similar kind of scam attack. False teachers had infiltrated these churches and they had overwhelmed people's minds with all kinds of nonsense and empty talk and nonsense teachings, filled up the churches with garbage, getting them to focus on all the wrong and meaningless things and causing them to miss what was most important, the gospel of grace in our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, this is no different than what happens in many churches around the world today. There are false teachers of every stripe and every kind and scam attacks with false teachings that depart from the faith and the truth once for all delivered to the saints. But you see, the Lord, our God, has an amazing fraud detection department for such false teachers. He has a great spam filter for such doctrinal scams. And they're called elders. Friends, last week we saw that there is an inseparable link between sound doctrine and godly living. Sound doctrine leads to godliness. Therefore, the protection and the promotion of sound doctrine is paramount. It is critical in the life of the church. Without sound doctrine, we have no hope of godliness. We have no hope of eternal life. Eternity is at stake. And so God gives His churches the gift of elders to protect sound doctrine and to promote godly living. That's the theme of our passage this morning. And my prayer this morning is that as we look at this text, dear friends, that your hearts would grow in gratitude for God's gift of elders, specifically your elders in this local church. And I pray that you would resolve to follow your elders as we seek to lead you in sound doctrine and godliness while you resist false teachers and empty talkers. So as we look at our text uh, today from verses 5 to 16, you'll see uh, the structure is very simple. It easily breaks down into two halves, right? In the first half, that is from verses 5 to 9, you'll see the protectors of sound doctrine, the elders. And then in verses 10 to 16, we'll see a description of the polluters of sound doctrine, false Teachers. And that's the outline for our sermon today. We see these two descriptions. The description of the protectors of sound doctrine, and then the description of the polluters of sound doctrine. So first, let's look at the protectors of sound doctrine. Elders. Look at verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, 
so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So you might remember the context of this letter. Paul is writing to Titus. Titus was a Gentile background believer who had come to faith through Paul's ministry, who had been discipled and mentored by Paul, and uh, uh, he had been traveling with Paul. And at some point in their travels, as they passed through this island called Crete, Paul had left Titus behind in Crete to do the work of pastoral ministry. He was ministering in one local church. He was also given responsibility by Paul to train pastors and help along other local churches, many of which were infested with these false teachings and bad doctrine. And, and here, look at what Paul tells him. This is, this is why he left him in Crete. This is what he says. He says, I left you there so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. In other words, the churches in Crete was sort of out of order. There was work yet to be done. Uh, these churches had been formed and planted, uh, but they were still not complete. Paul had not finished the work, and he had left Titus there to do it. It's very significant what this text says. Think about this. A church is not in order, biblically speaking. It's not biblically ordered unless it is led by a plurality of elders. Churches must have a plurality of elders if they are going to be biblically ordered. It's a biblical command and it's a biblical priority for the health and order of the local church. Put what remained into order, Paul says to Titus. Appoint elders in every town. That's how you're going to set this, these churches right. This is the strategy for com combating all of the bad stuff that's going on in these churches. This is the strategy to protect sound doctrine and to promote godly living, is that you appoint a plurality of godly qualified men called elders. Friends, our Lord Jesus Christ has ordained and commanded that His church must be led by a team, a team of godly men known as elders. Leadership in the body of Christ is never a one-man show. And in the New Testament, you will notice that the, the office of elder is also referred to as the office of pastor or overseer. These three terms are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament, elder, pastor and overseer to refer to this one office, those who shepherd the flock and oversee the body of Christ. And as we look at this text here from uh, verses 5 to 9, Paul tells us quite a bit about elders. He gives us both the marks of elders, who they should be, and the mandate for elders, what they should do. Okay. So he's told Titus, make sure you appoint elders. Now he says, here's the kind of man that you should appoint to be an elder. Here are the marks of those who will serve as elders. The, the first and kind of summary requirement is that those who serve as elders must be above reproach. Did you see that in verse 6? He says, if anyone 
is above reproach. And uh, that uh, phrase is so important. He repeats it again in verse 7. He says, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. What does that mean? It means that elders should be men against whom there is no charge that sticks. Someone seeks to bring a charge against an elder and it doesn't stick because there is no glaring flaw or blot in a man's life that would disqualify him from serving in this office, that would bring shame to the name of Christ or that would be out of step with godly living. Elders should be men of impeccable integrity. They should, their lives should be able to stand up to scrutiny, to the most intense scrutiny as God's leaders in His church. Their lives should be open, transparent, clear. There should be nothing to hide. There should be no charge by which they would be found guilty in a court of law or in a court of the church. No charge would stick. They should be blameless in that sense. Now, this doesn't mean that elders should be perfect. All of us are sinners. All of us stumble in many ways. But it does mean that there is no habitual ongoing sin sinful pattern in a man's life that would put him outside of what God requires of his leaders. It means that their lives should be marked by a holy walk with God. And if that's the kind of summary requirement that the elders should be above reproach, uh, Paul also gives us now kind of specific ways and areas in which the elders should be above reproach. Uh, the first one is this, elders must be above reproach in family leadership, in their leadership of their families. Look at verse 6. He says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, the phrase there translated, the husband of one wife, uh, it literally means a one woman, man. When you look at the life of an elder, if he's married, then his marriage should mark him out as a one woman man. There's, there's a degree of faithfulness, of complete devotion to his wife and to no other woman. And, and this is Speaking of faithfulness in the sexual realm, in the physical realm, but also in every other realm, in the emotional realm, in, in the sense of companionship and friendship, that there should be a holistic fidelity and commitment to his spouse alone. An elder must be faithful. You can't have as an elder... Uh, friendships off with another woman, which is kind of a special friendship or emotional ties or attachments outside your own marriage. An elder should not be one who is given to looking at pornography or who is watching things that a Christian man ought not to watch. An elder must not be loose or flirtatious or over-familiar with members of the opposite sex. No, an elder must be a one-woman man. And it 
Paul not only speaks of the elder's marriage, he also speaks of the elder's role as a father and as the head of his household. Notice what he, what he says. He says, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. The elder must be marked by leadership and godly authority in his own family, in his own household. Now, I want to be clear here because sometimes people get confused. They look at this word. It says his children are believers. Uh, so people wonder, and some people have asked if that means that all an elder's children uh, must be saved, born-again Christians. Uh, I don't think that that's what that word means. In fact, most interpreters uh, of Titus, uh, the, the, the majority view, is that the word that, which is translated believers, it can, it can also be translated faithful, right? So a man is not in control of whether his child becomes a Christian or not. That's the sovereign grace of God. But his uh, responsibility is to ensure that his child is faithful in the sense that his children are submissive to his authority, his children are obedient in the household to their parents. Uh, notice Paul explains what it means. He says that they should not be open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. That an elder's children are not running wild and running amok and running loose and doing whatever they want. If he has teenagers, they should be subject to his authority, not rebellious and out there pushing the boundaries. No, an elder must keep his children under control. They must be faithful. You must be able to look at an elder's life, at the way he leads and serves and loves his wife, and at the way he leads and teaches and raises his children, and say, that is an example for every Christian married man in the body of Christ. He should be proactive in his parenting. You know, I, I didn't grow up in a Christian household. And I came to faith when I was an adult. And then as I began to attend evangelical churches, I came to know of this kind of joke, inside joke in the churches that I had not known before. And people said, oh, typical PK. I said, what's, well, what's a PK? Oh, that's typical pastor's kid. Or, or someone will say, yeah, I was a typical PK. And well, what do you mean typical PK? Typical pastor's kid. And, and it, it came, I came to understand that this means that they were typically rebellious and wild, and, and went off the path in their teenage years. Friends, that is a sad travesty. It ought not to be that way. No, the, according to this passage, a typical PK should not be open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. They should be responsive to their parents' authority. They should be those who are hearing the word of God and being taught in their household and being raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord, as the scripture says. Too many men sacrifice their families on the altar of ministry. And kids grow up with an ever-absent father. The marriage is constantly under stress and at risk of breaking, all because of quote-unquote ministry. Brothers and sisters, it ought not to be so in the body of Christ, and it certainly ought not to be so among your elders at ECC, and I pray that you would hold us to these standards and call, uh, call upon us, pray, call upon the Lord for us, pray for us to be above reproach in how we lead our families first. If a man cannot lead his own family, if a man is not faithful as a one-woman man to his wife, if he's not faithful in leading his children, 
then he cannot be a leader in the household of God. Uh, not only must elders be above reproach in family leadership, but they must also be above reproach in personal godliness, verse 7. In personal godliness. Look at verse 7. Paul says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Notice there that Paul is speaking about personal godliness, not personality type. It's kind of become this fad in churches to be very concerned about a person's personality type and whether they fit the boxes for what a leader should be. Friends, Paul is not going off of personality type here. He's not looking at who is Mr. Friendly or who is Mr. Fun or, or who, who has the greatest charisma. No, the Bible always places character above charisma. Godliness above giftedness. That's the priority for those who would serve as shepherds among God's flock, who would lead the household of God as God's stewards. And notice, he gives us a list of what they should not be first. He gives us five um, kind of character traits that should not be true of an elder. And then he gives us six character traits of what they should be. So he says, he must not be arrogant. And, and the word there for arrogant uh, uh, usually connotes someone who is very self-focused, self-pleasing, who, who's constantly all about himself, who is looking at the church and the people as a means for self-advancement. Everyone has to bow to his agenda. Everything is self-serving. Rather than serving others, he uses others to serve himself. He wants to puff himself up put himself above others and look down on them. Another sign of arrogance that we see in, in Paul's letters was where he talks about people who keep on talking but they don't know what they're talking about. Now, elders ought not to be arrogant. They must be humble. An elder must not be quick-tempered. He must not be someone who has a hot head, who gets quickly inflamed, who when he's put under pressure reacts and is quick to anger and quick to lose his head, lose his cool, bite off someone else. It must never be said of an elder, oh, that guy is a bit of a hothead. No. An elder must not be a drunkard. He must not be given to intoxication. The pressures of the work must not lead him to drown his sorrows in drunkenness. There must be a sobriety about an elder. He must not be violent, and by the way, that term violence there refers to not just physical violence, but also verbal violence. An elder must not be pugnacious, someone who's always looking for a fight. Oh, I can't wait to get into that argument. Oh, I can't wait to get into that debate. His social media account must not be filled with constant verbal volleys and criticisms of others. No, an elder must be slow to enter conflict. Uh, an elder should seek to be one who diffuses conflict wherever he can. In, in fact, uh, sometimes conflict is necessary to protect the church. But there, requires to be, there, there should be a discernment of when you enter into conflict, when it's necessary, and when you try to diffuse conflict. 
and avoid it. So it requires to be courageous at times, but also cautious. Uh, an elder must not be one who is greedy for gain. He should not be in this for the money. He should have his eyes fixed on Christ, not on his bank account. He should not be in this for the, the greedy gain of self-advancement and self-promotion. Do You see, that's what an elder should not be. But here's what an elder should be, Paul says. He must be hospitable. Elders should be those who open their lives and open their hearts and open their homes to the people of God. They, they should not be those, I mean, it's, it's kind of an oxymoron to say someone is a celebrity pastor. But ought not to be celebrities. We ought to be those who live among you, who are known among you, who know you and are known by you. Elders must be lovers of good. They should have their hearts burning with a passion for the truths of God, for the word of God, for the things of God, for godly living among God's people. Elders must be self-controlled, sober-minded. We must have a kind of sobriety, a seriousness, as we think about life in a fallen world and brokenness that we live in this fallen world. We should have a control of our emotions. An elder's uh, emotional state should not always be up and down, up and down. I confess this is one thing I struggle with. I'm prone to uh, bouts of depression and great discouragement. You can pray for me in this. We should be self-controlled and have control over our emotions. An elder must be upright, holy, and disciplined. Like I said earlier, elders should be men of impeccable integrity. Those whom if you look at their dealings, at their words, you don't find them habitually lying or deceiving others. You find them walking in integrity in every sphere of their lives, whether their home, their personal lives, their walk in the church, their relationships, both inside and outside the church. An elder should be upright, a man of righteousness. An elder should be holy, reflecting the character of Christ. An elder should be disciplined, consistent, not given to always following his appetites. And, you know, as we think about all of these qualifications, both in the realm of family leadership and in the realm of personal godliness, uh, as D.A. Carson says, what, what's remarkable about them is how unremarkable they are. We're not called to be something extraordinary or some kind of a superman or avenger. No, elders, the requirements for elders as it relates to their family and as it relates to their personal character are the requirements for every Christian man. And the reason that these are requirements for every Christian man is because elders in their lives are to be an example to the flock. You should be able to look at an elder's life and say that's what a Christian should be. And by looking at an elder's life and by imitating the elder's life, both in his family and in his personal godliness, you should be able to grow and become a better Christian. This is God's gift to you. So the connection between sound doctrine and godliness and the sound doctrine that leads to godliness is fleshed out in the lives of elders. And as you observe their lives, the sound doctrine that they teach should translate into godliness in your own life because you see how they live among you. So an elder must be above reproach in family leadership 
and above reproach in personal godliness. And Paul there gives us character first, then he talks about gifting. And that comes up in verse 9. Elders must be above reproach in sound doctrine. Look at what it says. He says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Elders must be those who are able to teach and who are teachable. They must hold firm to the trustworthy word as they are taught. An elder must always be a student of God's word. There must be, in other words, Paul is saying, there must be a standard of doctrine to which churches subscribe, and elders should be those who embody submission to that standard. If they're going to be protectors of sound doctrine, they must be those who know their Bibles inside out, who hold to sound doctrine firmly and unashamedly. Did you notice the word? He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as thought. Sadly, in our day in evangelical Christianity, we've gotten this mistaken notion that holding firm to the truth of God is a sign of arrogance. And being loosey-goosey and saying, oh, I don't really know, is a sign of humility. That's not what the word of God says, friends. As elders live in submission to the truth of God and as they hold firm to convictions about that truth, they are doing what God has mandated them to do. So I want to speak to you just very personally. Brothers and sisters, members of ECC, hold us, your elders, to these qualifications. And always expect these qualifications of all your elders. Pray for us. The life of an elder is hard in many ways. There's a great personal cost to this service. So pray for your elders. If you're an elder sitting here in this hall or in the second main hall there, would you please stand so the congregation can see you? Brothers and sisters, commit to praying for these men. Pray for us and expect us to walk according to these qualifications. You may be seated. Pray for our families. Pray that we would lead our families well. Pray that we would walk in personal godliness. I know we've all been through as a church the great pain and grief of seeing one of our elders disqualified a couple of months ago. And that's one of the greatest trials a church can go through. And I'm thankful that we as a church have upheld the standards of God's word above any kind of favoritism or personality or gifting. I also want to encourage you uh, as we think about our associate pastor candidate process the next few weeks. This is your responsibility as brothers and sisters, as members of the body of Christ, uh, to get to know our brother JP. I'm really thankful for God's provision of him. He has been extensively vetted both by the associate pastor selection committee and by the elders. Many of you already know him, but I want to encourage you to sit under the preaching of God's word from him, to get to know him, to spend time with him in all the different windows that we provide for the congregation. Come to the prayer meeting and get to meet him and his family and assess him according to these qualifications. So we see there the marks of the elders, those who protect sound doctrine, in this passage, Paul also tells us the mandate of elders, the mandate of elders. Did you see verse 7? He says, an overseer as God's steward must be above repro reproach. 
Elders must be God's stewards. They are appointed as God's stewards in the church. What does that mean? That has kind of a twofold sense. On the one hand, elders are servants of Christ, servants of God. They serve under His authority as His stewards. But in another sense, elders are managers on behalf of God. They are His delegated representatives with the authority of God over the household of God, that is the church, to lead this household according to God's word. Elders are given authority, delegated by the Lord Himself to manage the Lord's household. And so, dear friends, I want you to think about that very carefully. When you resist the authority and the leadership of elders who are instructing and leading you according to the word of God, beware. Because that heart posture of resistance might not be against your elders, might be against the Lord himself. When you are resisting elders who are instructing you and leading you according to the word of God, you might be resisting God himself. So one part of their mandate is to be stewards of God in the household of God. The other part of their mandate is to give instruction and rebuke those who contradict it. Look at verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Elders are given this mandate by God as God's steward, as the Lord's managers. They are to promote good doctrine and godliness in the household of God by giving instruction, by teaching, and by rebuking those who contradict. So there's both a positive function and a negative function. On the positive side, we give instruction. We teach and teach and preach and teach and keep instructing and keep exhorting and keep encouraging. On the other hand, there's this negative function. We must rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. As one pastor famously said, a pastor needs two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. So if you look throughout the New Testament, you'll see again and again this function of pastors or elders as teachers. It's inseparable. Sometimes people ask me, why you didn't become a professor? Why didn't you pursue your career in teaching and academia? I said, because I'm called to teach. And, and that's why I'm an elder. I want a shepherd by teaching. At the time of the Protestant Reformation, you know, the Roman Catholics, uh, their priests would wear all of these vestments uh, with fancy designs. And the Protestant Reformers, when they would preach, they would wear a black Geneva gown, indicating their office as teachers of God's Word. There's only one mediator between man, of God, man and God, that's Jesus Christ. And elders or pastors are teachers. This is why also we should pray for seminaries around the world. This is why seminaries are a vital institution. Uh, John Stott once famously said, the key institution for the church is the seminary or theological college. In every country, the church is a reflection of its seminaries because seminaries train elders. Right? They, they, that's where convictions are formed. That's where the truth of God is learned beyond just the local church. The primary place is the local church, but seminaries help the local church in training men for the work of ministry, for the work of preaching. So we should be thankful for the work of Gulf Theological Seminary. We should pray for Gulf Theological Seminary and support it in the work of training pastors for churches around the world and in this country. So friends, the Lord protects His church from 
all kinds of scam attacks by giving us this great fraud detection unit called the elders, those who are focused on the truth. And you know, we think about our lives, we are often thankful for those who help us in various realms of life. Right? I know many of you would be very thankful for doctors who have made an accurate diagnosis and prescribed the right medicine and taken care of your bodies. Well, how much more should you be thankful for those who take care of your souls? Those who are God's stewards who protect you from all kinds of falsehoods. I think of my own life. Many people ask me how I grew as a Christian. And one of the primary ways I grew as a Christian was through the example and teaching of godly elders whom the Lord placed in my life. I, I called one of my former pastors this past week, Pastor Ryan Fullerton, and I told him, Brother, every time I talk to him, I just want to say, Brother, I just want to share with you, and with tears in my eyes over the phone, I was telling him just how thankful I am for your example and for your instruction and how the Lord used you in my life. It's made me who I am today. I told you last week, brothers and sisters, that we are here as pastors for your progress in the faith, for your knowledge of the truth, for your hope in eternal life, and ultimately your godliness. That's the mandate Paul gave Titus. That's the mandate for every pastor. And I want to ask you, do you receive this ministry from your elders? Do you pray for us to be faithful in this ministry? And I want to ask you to pray that the Lord would keep raising up faithful elders for this congregation. We are here so that when the wolves attack, they have to deal with us before they get to you. We are here so that they will bite us before they devour you. And we often face that at great personal cost and sacrifice. The elders are protectors of sound doctrine in the church. And the reason that we need such protectors is because there are many polluters of sound doctrine. That's why elders must be able to rebuke those who contradict. That's why every church must have elders because sound doctrine must be protected. That's what we see next in today's text. We've seen the protectors of sound doctrine, their marks, their mandate. Next we see the polluters of sound doctrine. The polluters of sound doctrine are the false teachers that we see in verses 10 to 16. Look again at verse 10. Paul says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. And, and the word for there indicates the reason why elders are given, right? Why do you have elders? Why must they be appointed in every town, in every church? Why must they be able to refute those who contradict? Because of these guys, the false teachers. We've seen the marks of elders. What are the marks of these guys, those who pollute sound doctrine? Well, the first mark Paul tells us there is that they are insubordinate insubordination. They don't live in submission to authority. The elders live in submission to authority, the authority of the Lord as reflected in His Word. They submit to the standard of doctrine that is given by the Lord. They hold to the trustworthy Word as they are taught. False teachers do not live in submission to authority. Each of them is their own man. They're not under authority. They don't like being under authority. They like to do whatever they want and they don't want anyone to tell them otherwise. Just as an aside here, uh, if, if you are here in this church, I, I sometimes see this as a mark of Christians, insubordination, where it's just between me and God and no one can tell me what to do and I'll do whatever my heart says and God told me and you can't tell me otherwise. Friends, that is a serious mark of spiritual deficiency, immaturity, and ungodliness. The false teachers are marked by insubordination. 
Next, they are marked by empty talk. Do you see that? They are empty talkers. They go on and on talking. They, they, they're like the subscription bomb that fills your mind with spam and nonsense. They talk and talk, talking, 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 not knowing what they're talking about. They, they major on the minors. They pick up small little things in the Bible and make a big deal out of it while they minor on the majors and neglect the most essential truths completely. They are marked by deceptive teaching. Do you see that? They are deceivers. In Paul's day, there were many of these guys who were undermining the gospel of grace. They were causing people to talk about all of these Jewish myths. They were turning uh, the Christian faith into a list of do's and don'ts. Do all of this. Don't do that. If you eat these foods, you will be clean. If you don't eat these foods, you will be uh, all right before God. Don't get married. Don't eat food. Don't have fun. Do's and don'ts. Friends, that's not Christianity. That's not the Christian faith. And we have many such of these in our day. We have many deceptive teachers in our day, many deceptive teachings. A lot of churches where a kind of works-based salvation is emphasized and your standing before God is, is, is a result of what you do or didn't do rather than of God's grace. We have the false teaching of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that, that teaches you that if you give enough, if you just have enough faith, if you just do this enough, then you'll have all of these blessings, earthly blessings. That's a false teaching. You have the false teachings of the deliverance ministries that tells you if your life has to be okay, you just have to go and get kind of this deliverance from this specially gifted apostle or prophet or deliverance minister or whatever he's called. We have man-centered, feel-good, self-help teachers like Stephen Furtick. Yes, Stephen Furtick who will tell you that if you just, you know, if you just think positive and just do it right, and if you just go this way and, and confess the right things, you'll be okay. Friends, I was very disturbed to know that a very popular missions course, I, I met with the main leaders of this missions course, and a former member of ECC was uh, the one who brokered this meeting, and he wants to see this course established and promoted. It used to be run here regularly. We canceled it because we were concerned about its doctrines. And as I met with the leaders of this mission course, uh, they were teaching that you don't have to be a Christian to follow Christ. Friends, these are false teachings. And beware. They come in all shapes and sizes. That's why the Lord gives you elders to protect you from these things. But why do they do all of this? Why all of these false teachings? What, what, what's behind it? Well, they, they're not only marked by insubordination, empty talk, and deceptive teaching... They do it out of evil motives. Do you see that? Look at verse 11. Verse 11, he says, They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. False teachers do this for shameful gain. They do it to get rich. Some of the health, wealth, and prosperity preachers are some of the richest men in the world. They fleece the flock rather than feeding the flock so that the sheep of Christ are left shaven and starving. That's their motive. It's a get-rich-quick scheme. And, and other false teachers, even if they're not doing it for the money, though most of them are, they will do it for self-aggrandizement, to build their own personality cult, their Instagram following, to promote themselves. To feed their need for self-recognition. 
The next mark is disruptive results. Disruptive results. Do you see verse 11? They are upsetting whole families by their teaching. They don't just hurt the faith of individual Christians. They upset entire households. They lead scores of people away from Christ, take their eyes off of Christ. Families are broken and hurt and destroyed. Oh, the great grief I feel when I meet people who have been hurt in this way. When I meet families whose faith and whose entire lives have been disrupted by the work of false teachers. They are marked by disruptive results. And finally and climactically, they are marked by disobedient lives. Disobedient lives. Do you see verse 16? They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You might remember, if you look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul tells Timothy to uh, devote himself to Scripture because by it he is prepared and equipped for every good work. These false teachers are unfit for any good work. Their lives show it. Jesus says, you will know every tree by its fruit. They're not above reproach. They live in ungodly ways. The fruit of their teaching is evident. Sound doctrine leads to godliness. Bad doctrine leads to ungodliness. And this is evidenced in the lives of false teachers and in their disciples. So dear friends, brothers and sisters... Don't sit under false teachers. Don't listen to them. Guard this church together with your elders. Trust us as we seek to guard and protect sound doctrine in our midst. Don't follow false teachers. Don't repost their stuff on social media. Beware whom you listen to. If you have any questions about a particular teacher or their teachings, come talk to us. We're here for you, your elders, to help you Move towards sound doctrine. In fact, the primary place where you are to be taught and instructed in sound doctrine and to grow up in righteousness is not from your favorite internet preacher. It's from the local church, from those whom God has appointed over you. So we see the marks of these polluters of the truth. Next, we see the mandate for them. What must be done with regard to these false teachers? Well, first, they must be silenced. Do you see verse 11? They must be Silence, because they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And the word for silence there uh, has this connotation of being muzzled, like putting a guard on their mouths and shutting them up. He says to Titus, Titus, find these guys, shut them up, don't let them talk. And we make that commitment to you, brothers and sisters. We will not let any teaching take place at ECC that is contrary to the word of God. We will not let any class be taught at ECC that goes outside the boundaries of Scripture. This is why our elders are very keen on the teaching ministries of this church. This is why any kind of curriculum that is used in a class or in a small group or any of these things, we take responsibility for it as elders because we are accountable to God for what is happening in the life of the church, for what you are being taught. False teachers must be silenced. And then, those who follow them must be rebuked. Do you see this in verses 13 and 14? Paul says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, 
evil beasts and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. There, Paul is speaking not of the false teachers, I think, but with many commentators, I think he's speaking of the people who follow these false teachers. Because notice verse 14, he says, verse 13 and 14, he says, Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So the people who give these commands and turn them away from the truth, those are the false teachers. Paul says, rebuke the Cretan believers sharply so that they don't turn away after these guys. See, Crete was a very godless place. It was a very godless culture. That's what gave a rise uh, to this kind of generalization concerning their culture. In, in this culture, in the land of Crete, it was kind of a virtue to deceive others and tell lies. Uh, laziness and gluttony were seen as good things. These people lived licentious, evil lives. And so there was this kind of generalization, this proverb about their culture. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, that some poet from Crete had said at some point. And Paul says, you know what? He's right. This testimony is true. It is a godless culture. They have these proclivities because of their culture. And so they are even more inclined to follow the false teachers. And when you see that happening, Titus, Paul says, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. Friends, I know that we come from many different cultures here at ECC. And in some of your cultures, there are certain kind of pet sins. We must remember that all culture is the product of fallen human beings. Every culture is broken and sinful and warped in some way and out of step with God's word. And, you know, we, we find it very uh, kind of difficult when we are addressing sin or confronting sin in people's lives at times and people turn around and tell us, oh, pastor, you, know, you don't understand, that's my culture. And to them I want to say, well, too bad, the Bible is above your culture. The Bible corrects every culture and turns every culture upside down and forms a new culture which is the culture of the kingdom of heaven. So we hold the Bible as our final authority, not your culture or my culture. And when we find our lives out of step with the Bible, don't tell me this is my culture. Cretan culture was bad. Every one of our cultures has negative elements that must be corrected. Rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Brothers and sisters, when your elders rebuke you, and rebuke you sharply at times, it's because we love you. It's because we want to protect you. It's because we care for you, and we want to follow the Lord's mandate to protect you, so that you might be sound in the faith so that you might inherit eternal life. In verse 15, Paul kind of refutes these false teachers' teaching with one little sentence. Remember, these people were saying, you know, you can only eat these foods, these are the pure foods, you can't eat those foods, those are impure foods, don't defile yourself with this, don't defile yourself with that, make sure that you keep on the line, all of these legalistic requirements. And Paul says, to the pure, all things are pure. 
but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. These false teachers were calling things impure because their own consciences and minds were impure and defiled. But for those who belong to Christ, we are pure. And all things may be received with thanksgiving because they've been made pure by the word of God and prayer. And really there, it's a remarkable thing, isn't it, when we think about the fact that Scripture calls us pure. Friends, none of us come into this world as pure. In fact, we come into this world as those who are stained with the stain of sin. We come into this world as those who are defiled, polluted, corrupted, because we have all sinned against a holy God. But God in His grace provided His own Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is fully God, God the Son from all eternity, took on flesh and lived as fully man, lived the only perfectly pure life, holy, innocent, pure. And then offered Himself as the perfect sacrifice. He died on the cross, shed His blood, poured out His blood, so that those who are defiled and corrupted and filthy and with no hope may be cleansed and made spotless and clean by faith in Him. So if you're here this morning and your conscience is filthy and defiled, if you're here this morning and your mind is polluted, if you're here this morning and you don't know the cleansing fountain that is in our Lord Jesus Christ, may I appeal to you once again to hear the voice of the Son of God calling you to Himself, to turn from your defilement and your sin, flee to Christ and be cleansed, be made pure and blameless in the sight of God by His blood. That's the gospel of grace. And that gospel of grace is so vital that it must be protected, promoted, and preserved. That's why God gives us elders, and that's why we're here, to protect sound doctrine and to promote your godliness. We love you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of elders in the church. I pray for the elders of this church. May we be found faithful. And I pray for all of us, Lord, as the members of ECC, that sound doctrine would be promoted in our lives, that we would grow in sound doctrine and in godliness. In Jesus' name, amen.